Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. While most industries have already realized the benefits of assembly line-based automated manufacturing processes, home building continues to be very slow, built one at a time, using largely the same materials we've used for decades, and with a high degree of variance between one house and the other from a quality perspective. Boxable is looking to change that. By creating a factory that borrows from many of the principles of automotive manufacturing, Boxable has created a foldable house that can be manufactured in a day and assembled on site in around an hour. They are fireproof, waterproof, energy efficient, and modular, allowing for infinite customization. Boxable has managed to raise over $100 million entirely through their crowdfunded model, and their customers include the Department of Defense and Elon Musk. In this conversation, we chat with Galliano Tiramani, co-founder of Boxable, and we discuss the origins of the company, why building a foldable house was essential to scale, how they rapidly iterated on the product early on and continue to do so, how they've navigated building codes and compliance issues, how they plan to scale internationally, and much, much more. Really interesting conversation, incredibly impressive what they've managed to do. And with that, let's go to Gali. All right. Is it Galliano? Gali? I've seen it said a couple of different ways. Yeah, you call me either one, but my name's Galliano Tiramani from Boxable, and it's nice to meet you, and, and thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, no, I've heard of you through a couple of different lenses. A friend of mine is an investor and been following your journey, so excited to, to dig into this. For folks, I guess, who are not familiar with you, what is Boxable? Yeah, so Boxable is a new way to mass-produce houses. We are a factory that is building houses, essentially. If you, if you just quickly check out our website, boxableboxabl.com. You'll see right away a video of the house and you'll get a good understanding of what we're doing. The thing that stands out to people is that the houses actually fold up and they fold up so they can ship and they need to be able to ship so that we can scale manufacturing and, and drive the cost down. And, and really the idea here is that we would produce more housing faster and at a lower cost than anyone else has ever been able to do before. Yeah. And my understanding is that part of the vision for this is you, you've, you've spoken often about this idea of kind of the global housing crisis. Can you explain maybe for people who just aren't familiar with what's going on with that, like what maybe what some of the issues are that are driving the problem and why Boxable could be a suitable solution for to, to help address it? Yeah. I mean, everyone hears that rent is too high and housing is not available. And this is not just a problem in the US. This happens all over the world. There's just housing issues and there's really no way to make enough with the current methods because no matter how much money you throw at it, there's only so many people out there you know, building houses. And the way they build it now, 90% of houses are built one at a time by hand out in the elements. It takes six to eight months to build a house. And it's just really an ancient way of doing things when every other product is built on an assembly line with mass production. And we know those mass production principles work and they just haven't been applied to housing because we think houses are just too big to ship. So by, sol by solving that shipping problem, we're now producing just in our first factory, one house every two hours. And we think that in the next big factory, we'll get to one house every minute. And we think that's totally achievable with our technology and wow. just not even a big deal because they do that with automobiles and they do that with other products. Yeah. You, you mentioned the kind of the foldable nature of it. And I know that it, from what you said, it, it allows you to be more scalable than other people. And, and there are a couple of people that are trying to solve for this. And it sounds like you're the only ones that, that have, have solved for that specific piece of it. Can you explain to folks why having the ability to fold the house matters so much from a logistical perspective, from a scaling perspective? Yeah. So we wanted to ship rooms that don't really have compromise, like don't have low ceilings or narrow rooms. 
And those rooms can stack and connect to build many different building types, like almost every different building type. And the problem with the way they're doing it now in the factory built housing that does exist and has been around for a while is they ship these oversized loads. They're essentially illegal loads. They need special permits. And with special permits comes extra cost. Also, you get restricted routes, restricted travel times, the requirement to have a follow car. So like, for example, if you're shipping uh, a traditional modular house that's over wide, you're going to have the house with, the, with the, the truck with the house on it. And then you're going to have another car behind it with flags on it leading the way. And then you all of a sudden you have two drivers and two trucks and the costs just explode. And it doesn't make sense. And you can't really scale that. And, and you certainly can't ship more than a few hundred miles from the factory. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I'd be curious to learn... I always kind of like to get into the early days and almost sort of like the MVP kind of aspect of it. My understanding is that you started with what you called R&D lab or a smaller factory to come up with how you would address some of this stuff. Can you try to think back to those days and, and what did you learn going through that process? Like how long did it take to arrive at the final design? Maybe what were some of the lessons that you learned about a lot of the people that, that listen to this kind of come more from like a tech background and so cycle time and fast iteration is really easy to do with software. I would imagine it's quite a bit harder with, with technology or with, 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 with physical products. What did you learn maybe going through that process, trying to get to the MVP of something this complex? Yeah. I mean, well, the truth is we're still not done with the design <laughs> and the innovation. Uh, yeah. There's always going to be a next gen of the product, just like there's a new iPhone every year. So mm-hmm. we're already on like the fourth generation of, of the boxable product. But from the beginning, it was a tremendous learning curve and a tremendous amount of, of R&D and testing. I basically went through every different building material, building system under the sun. I watched endless videos on the internet. I went and visited manufacturers. I called companies up and asked them weird questions about their product and just tried to find the different angles that would make things different and more efficient and, and faster and higher quality and, and meet all the ratings that we need to make. And you know what we're building with, these are not traditional building materials. It's not a lumber frame, stick frame construction with wood and nails that you'd see in North America. We're using all different stuff. And there's a bunch of different reasons why we're using this different stuff. And there's different requirements. And frankly, they don't all align. Like you have to make the house energy efficient. It has to be structurally strong. It should be lightweight. It should be fire resistant. And making one product that serves all of those things is, is not easy. You have to really dial it in. But what we've come up with is, is just amazing and keeps getting better and better. And we're really excited with the trajectory of the product. But back in the day, it was just basically my, myself, my, my dad, Hello, and another guy named Kyle Denman. And we, we just had a little shop and we were just messing around in there, building stuff, testing stuff. And eventually we decided, all right, we're ready. And, and we're ready to go out with this product. We got a big first order and then we set up a huge factory. And basically a year ago now, we, we got up and running in this first factory. It's 170,000 feet. We got a, an order for 156 houses from the Department of Defense. We got in there. We, we installed all this equipment, just not common equipment, new manufacturing methods, new materials. We hired several hundred people and just went for it. And we managed to pull it off and we delivered that order in less than a year. And now we're opening a second factory. So it's just been a, a wild ride. And even that those first 156 houses, the truth is, those were all prototypes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. we didn't actually, we went from the first gen of the product or whatever gen it was into that next gen that was the production gen, but we didn't even build 
one prototype with that method, we immediately went and ordered 156 of everything and just went for it. But it, but it's all working out really well. And we've pulled it off and, and executed and delivered on all the promises. So we're just, we're amped up and, and things are taking off. A lot of entrepreneurs struggle with getting those those early believers, especially from like a client perspective. And I, I go back to, you walk into the Department of Defense. How did you go about closing that deal when you didn't have a factory yet? You didn't have, you didn't even, it sounds like you had maybe something of a prototype, but it, it wasn't vaporware necessarily, but like you were selling the dream clearly. What was that <laughs> process like? Yeah. I mean, the stars really aligned for that. A lot of things went right. There was a little bit of luck in there and there was certainly a lot of persistence. And that's yeah. really what it takes. Just keep trying and trying and trying. And at that point, we had the one prototype and that was it. We had a very small warehouse building. And what I was doing every day is basically doing marketing to drive traffic to the website to get people to find out about it, capturing the leads and then following up with the leads. So I was on the phone like every day from when I woke up in the morning, from when I went to bed, like literally nonstop on the phone. Like I lost my voice. It was crazy. And I talked to everyone under the sun and like a lot of people are just full of shit. And they, and a million people made all these promises. And when yeah. the first few times I heard the promises, I'm like, oh guys, we have this huge opportunity. And then crickets, nothing would happen. But I learned you just had to keep going through these leads and these leads. And eventually one Saturday morning, I took a call with some guy who said that he was worked at a military base and had the ability to spend tens of millions of dollars of the government's money. And then he wanted our houses. And I explained to him everything that was going on. And then I just went on to my next call and I thought nothing of it because at that point I was so used to hearing bullshit. And then <laughs> it turns out a few weeks later, he called back and he was the real deal. So after just always giving everyone the, the time, a little bit of time, the opportunity started to, to come to come up. And that was a big one. And that changed our trajectory because when when we got that order, we were planning an, a factory that was a much smaller factory. And when mm. we got the order, we said, this is not going to work. We're not going to be able to deliver this in their time frame with this smaller factory. So then we just said, fuck it, let's go huge. And we mm -hmm. went crazy. And we got into this huge building, 170,000 feet with not enough money, with, with no experience, no resources, no track record, convinced everyone to sign on, convinced the government to sign on, convinced the, the owner of the warehouse building to lease us the building, which is unusual as well. I mean, and, and, and we pulled it off. So it's, it's pretty wow. crazy. <laughs> what were, I guess when, when you, once you, it's kind of like a burn the bridges kind of moment, like you had to, had to go for it. How did you, how did you learn as quickly as you did? Because you mentioned like, not only are you innovating on materials, like I know you like, you're using like foam and as insulation, which is a novel decision. And there's reasons why you did that. And you mentioned a bunch of the materials are different and the manufacturing processes were different. Like, how did you, when you have so many gaps in terms of what you're trying to piece together and you have such a limited time frame to pull it off, how did you did you rely on experts to try to help fill in gaps? Like, how did you get up to speed so quickly once you were all in? We had a small team. Everyone worked really hard. We basically just just went crazy and and spent a lot of hours doing a lot of research. At a certain point, we figured out what the plan was for the factory, what the manufacturing equipment was, what all the material was, and then before we pulled the trigger on a lot of it, we did bring in an expert, which was Porsche Consulting. So like the car company Porsche, they do consulting for manufacturing and uh, uh, we got them in. They looked at everything we did. They made some suggestions and 
roughly everything we we planned made sense, and then we just just went forward. They they took a few weeks, and aside from that, it was just just a bunch of guys figuring it out. And the, the truth is, we we can't. There's no known method for what we're doing. So yeah. really, there's no one that can tell us what to do except yeah. us. I mean, this isn't even automobile manufacturing, even though that's very hardcore. That's a known thing. And they yeah. do it with established methods. What we're doing is just all new, totally made up. Everything's crazy. The the one one of our our key employees is actually a guy I met through Craigslist when I moved to Las Vegas. I was looking for someone to help me move in and hang and hang and mount TVs on my wall. So I I met this guy and he was a solid guy, really really impressive, great work ethic, and he's now basically manages the entire factory. So that's just an example of someone who who knew nothing about boxable or building houses or fast production and just figured it all out and, and learned it and excelled and, and now is just really doing it. But things are getting better because now we have more funding, we have more resources, we're bringing in experts, we now have manufacturing engineers, we now have people with with relevant experience. So we're, we're pu- pulling together a team of people with expertise versus when we started, it was just a team of guys figuring it out. Yeah. If you were to like knowing what you now know, if you were to either do it over again, or if you had a friend that came to you and was planning on building a manufacturing type of business, what would your advice be to someone that's trying to navigate through that whole process? It's a pretty different way. Um, If you haven't done it before, I would imagine the learning curve is huge. Yeah. I mean, with all of this kind of stuff, it's just, it's just, you just need like really brutal persistence. Like like you just need to just not give up no matter what and keep hammering away and keep making lots of small decisions that are the right decisions. And eventually they add up and eventually they pay off and eventually it snowballs. But but for us, one big thing that I figured out how to do early on was, was the marketing. And it's just been so valuable. Being out there in the public and having people find out about this is something that I would repeat in other companies and I hadn't done before. And it's just about driving resources and opportunities. So because so many people are finding out about us, because of the Elon Musk press this morning, because of the other social media influencers and all the followers and the web traffic, we have like nonstop resources pouring into the company that we get to just farm. So whether it's an investor, a customer, a potential employee, a supplier, all these people are just flowing in through the website, making saying, oh, we have this for you, we have this for you. And then we're sitting here getting all the best of all these opportunities. And that's what's driven this this whole thing. And we wouldn't be here without the marketing. So the marketing plus a really solid product has allowed us to have a crazy trajectory. Mm-hmm. I mean, along those lines, the 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 obviously the product itself plays a huge role in terms of the word of mouth aspect of it. It's a novel idea. The house folds up. It's It, it catches your attention immediately. But was, was there anything, because my understanding is you've primarily been using organic channels to do this marketing. What have you learned? And like, you're doing like, I, I noticed like you're kind of almost doing like the Gary V, like I'm documenting rather than creating and some of that kind of stuff. Like, what have you learned about grassroots marketing or organic marketing as a, as a, as a mechanism to build up all of this interest? Other than the fact that you just have a legitimately cool product. Yeah, I mean, basically all you have to do to sell anything, it seems like, is drive the views somehow, then then capture those leads so that you have them either through a pixel or a web form or an email, and then just remarket to those leads. And if you can scale that up, it just becomes a numbers game. 
So what I did was I, I we, we had a really big success early on when we found a YouTuber with a relevant channel about housing and had her do a video on us. And I just reached out one day because I was chasing down traditional press like local news and not yeah. getting any anything out of it. And it, and it didn't yeah. work well. And I was like, oh, man. So then I'm like, all right, I'll try a YouTuber. So I went to the YouTuber. I was like, hey, you want to do a video? She's like, sure. We did the video. And all of a sudden, boom, web traffic's up. Inquiries are up. Form submissions are up. I'm like, all right, I'm on to something here. And then I just went crazy with it and doubled down and reached out to thousands of people and kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And then stuff starts to happen organically because other people, they all want content and they mm-hmm. all want views. So if they see something that's cool and it's going to get them the views, they'll, they'll do it. And it's just snowballed from there. And, and now we're getting people with bigger and bigger followings talking about us. And that just pays off immensely. Yeah. I know also you you leveraged, it seems like you're leveraging a crowdfunding model, at least for part of the fundraise. Obviously, your capital requirements are a lot bigger than what you can do through that alone. But I would imagine that that factored in the strategy as well, because it seems like a lot of the content, again, especially like the documenting versus creating kind of thing. Yes, there's a, there's a degree of polish to the content that you're creating, but it almost seems like you're it's accomplishing multiple goals. Like you're educating new people about it, but you're also keeping your believers, either people who are on the wait list or people who decided to invest to be the crowdfunding abreast of what's going on. And it makes them feel more ownership for it. And I know that's how I, I, I keep getting the updates from people who, you know, who invested in it. And that's, and that's how I found out about it. And was that a deliberate process or did you like, did you know that that would be something that would happen behind that? Was that why you did the crowdfunding or like what, what was kind of the I mean, impetus for that piece of it? I mean, I, I didn't know any of this would happen. And it's all just evolved. And I've, I've learned quickly and I've doubled down on things that work. The community that we're building is is crazy, though. We now have a, a, a Facebook group, Boxable Investors on Facebook. This is a group created by a third party that now has 8,000 members. These wow. guys are so active. They're on there talking about it every day. When I go on there and comment, they're super excited to see me giving a shit enough to 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 reply to them. And of course I do. And all of this is just amazing. We also did the the affiliate program on our website where people can market us and get mm-hmm. a commission of the of the of the reservations. And it, it all of it just contributes. And that's one benefit of the crowdfunding is we basically have this group of cheerleaders now. It's twenty thousand people. They've invested over $110 million. We've set we've set records. And these guys are out there talking to us and telling more people. And you're right, they're coming back for more. A lot of these people are investing now again and again as they see us actually doing what we say we're going to do and actually delivering. Because a lot of this crowdfunding stuff can be scammy sometimes and abusive. But the fact that we are actually like doing everything we said we're going to do, succeeding, yeah. doing it quickly, everyone's like, taking a second look and they're like, all right, this is for real. And a lot of people at the beginning were like, this guy's full of shit. He's making all these grandiose claims. But now we're proving them all wrong. So they're coming yeah. back around. And it's it's been like just huge. I, the crowdfunding, I don't see any downside to it at all. Any yeah. downside I've heard is basically could be debunked. It's allowed me to remain in complete control. Paolo and I to remain in complete control of the company, call all the shots, get the best terms, cut out the middleman, give ourselves leverage for deals with the the big boys later on, because Mm -hmm. you're right, we can't raise billions of dollars through crowdfunding, but we will need billions of dollars. And and the problem we're trying to solve can command that. But now when I go to these bigger guys, I have all this leverage because I'm like, well, look, this is 
this is what the, the market is actually assessing us at. And, and they're signing on in, in droves. So it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, raising $100 million, I mean, that's more than I would, have, I would have imagined. Was there anything that you, I guess, any of, like, a lot of my students at, at Kellogg, for example, like they factor crowdfunding to, or they think the crowdfunding is going to be a piece of their kind of early success. Any advice you'd give to founders that are contemplating exploring a crowdfunding model, like how to do it well, yeah. pitfalls to avoid? If you have a product that a lot of people can relate to and understand, or you even have access to a community where you're going to find the people that are interested in what you're doing, and you can tap into that, just do it. I mean, there's really no downside to it. You can now do a Reg CF offering, which does not require qualification from the SEC. So there's no waiting. You just go and do it and you put it out there. I would say try to get it directly on your own website versus on one of these platforms, because then you can control the traffic, you control the remarketing and, and the whole sales process and give it a try. Worst case that happens, you only get a little bit of money instead of a lot of money and, and that's it. And I just, when I, when I was trying to raise money early on and talking to these other kind of institutional investors, I just was met with this just very abrasive arrogance and condescending stuff and people who didn't understand what I was doing, telling me why, why it sucked. And now that I look back at it, I'm like, these people weren't even qualified. They, don't, they didn't even necessarily have any real world business experience like I do. And they didn't know what they were talking about. Wow. But somehow they got in control of this, of this money for someone else. And the way they were looking at things just didn't make sense. They're all obsessed with, with valuation. And the problem when you, when you beat up a founder yeah. about valuation, you're either going to get one of a few things. If a, if a founder is going to give the company away for a low valuation, it shows that they don't believe in the company because they don't see an upside in holding on to the valuation. Then the, then the founder is just going to basically rip you off, waste the money, blow it on a salary, and 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 I think I don't think that's a good strategy for these VCs to be obsessed with the valuation because what they're looking for is a ten or twenty x return. Whether they pay a ten million valuation or a twelve million valuation, it's not going to really affect it if it's if it's um, if it's serious. Right. And the other thing was a lot of the offers we did get early on, basically were, were trying to get us to give up control of the company uh, to these people we didn't even know. And we were like, no, we're not doing that. And, and we didn't just come with an idea either. Like we put our own money into this. Paolo put several million dollars into this before we took a dime from investors. So we were, we were committed. We spent years on it. We, we weren't just coming with an idea and asking, and asking for money. But yeah, crowdfunding is huge. It's becoming more and more popular. It makes more and more sense. And it's pretty cool too, because the potential here is that make, you know, thousands of people rich. That's like awesome. That's like, that's like epic. Uh, if that, if that can happen. Yeah, that's really cool. So, okay. So you, you, you got the prototype, you shipped it to the Department of Defense, you got the factory, now you're in scale mode, I guess, for lack of a better word. I would imagine that there's a whole new set of problems that you're encountering. So like, for example, like different cities or different states and things that have different codes and all that kind of stuff. Like, what if, how have you navigated, like you said, how do you build, how do you build a unit and mass produce it and accommodate all of the different nuances that you're <laughs> going to run into from a legislative perspective or regulatory perspective? Yeah, on that front, there's a lot of problems there. And one of the reasons that housing is so expensive is that it's extremely, 
highly regulated. Like it's it's absurd what they do, and they do it because it's a big tax center for them. The taxes funds all the local governments, so of course they have to give themselves an excuse to exist. So they're they're torturing everyone. Like you, there's no other modern product where you put this product in and you have an inspector out from the city three or four times during the setup of the product. Like that's just it's it's crazy. And then the permitting fees and the restrictions and all these very specific rules about shape and size and setbacks. Frankly, it's it's really sad to me because we're supposed to be free country, free people, but you can't even own property in this country. You can't even own your own house. You might think you own your own house, but you're always paying rent back to the government because of property taxes. And that just kind of sucks. But you know, all that stuff aside, the boxable it shortcuts that a little bit because we go through the state programs where they have these state modular programs. We get inspections done in our factory by a third-party private company, not the city, and we get the plans approved at the state level. So before a, a local building department even sees a, a proposal to put a boxable somewhere, it's already signed off. Building department's already signed off. Inspection's already signed off, all of it. So that shortcuts things. We are going through that process now. We do have to go state by state, which which is not good. There's a federal sure. program as well, but the federal program has some some drawbacks. It's traditionally for like trailer park, double wide type of type of homes. We will qualify for that and we will be in that program as well to give people options. But we're working through it. And I think that right now it's not a big deal because there's so much demand. If some place gives us a hard time, you will go somewhere else. There's plenty of people who want housing and who are going to be friendly to it. But once we really scale up, we will have to fight back a little bit about this stuff and try to reform it the same way you would see like Uber fighting back against these cronyism ta- taxi laws right. in places and and maybe Airbnb yeah. and, and they're all kind of fighting against these regulations too. But that's another fight for, for down the road. Yeah. I mean, it does seem it's a lot cheaper and a lot more efficient for the state and local governments knowing that they only have to prove it one time in the factory. And now that they know they don't have to go out every single time, it seems like there's an incentive there, at least for a, for a, for a, for a municipality that cares about budgets and things like that, which maybe they don't all, they don't all care, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Really you're going, you're going from like a very splintered industry where you have all of these little individual builders building things from scratch, which are dangerous. They are houses. And then all of a sudden you have, this one big company with the quality control and the assembly line, taking all of that out of the hands of the little guy, it can become this national brand where it's well known, where it's accepted, where they see, you know, they see this plan for box, but they say, oh, that's good. I know about that. That's safe. It's not going to collapse on, on people versus Joe Schmo going out and building something in his backyard or whatever that they're trying to prevent. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Along those same lines, I know you partnered, I think it was with D.R. Horton, which is like one of the larger, I guess, home building firms or experts kind of in the United States, like what have they brought to the table as you've been scaling and what, what have, what's, what's been the strategic kind of thinking behind that partnership? Yeah, they have been absolutely amazing. And I'm like blown away by it because I didn't expect that. I thought they would just invest in, and disappear and fill their quota or whatever, but they are in our factory all the time. They are bringing us opportunities all the time. They've placed a hundred unit order and they are deploying those, not worrying about making money, just worrying about helping us with product development and learning about installs. They're doing test units. They're hooking us into their supply chain, their mortgage stuff. I mean, they have been a huge ally and a huge validation because they know 
what makes sense with housing more than even I do because they do it for real on a huge scale as the biggest builder in the country. So the fact that they're looking at what we're doing and saying, these guys are on something we want in on it. It's just, it's massive. So we'll see how that partnership continues to develop, but you know, really love those guys. Is there anything you learned through that process around identifying potential strategic partnerships and how to negotiate them and how to make sure it's a win-win, anything like that? Well, with that one, I do a lot of outreach to potential strategic partners. I don't, I, I'm pretty sure the channel where we ended up really connecting with them, they found us. So it went back to that general marketing being so effective and bringing in all these opportunities. And I think that's where that, that came from with them. And then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been pretty easy with them. They came into the factory at first when we had nothing, just the building. And then a few months later, it's all set up and we're building houses. And and then at that point was when they pulled the trigger on, on the investment because they said, all right, these guys are, are, are the real deal. So, but yeah, it's, it's been great. Yeah, very cool. A lot of startups, there's a lot of chatter around like building culture and being delivered about building culture. And it seems like from some of your update videos and things like that, that y'all have a very distinctive culture. There's a lot of humor there. You don't take yourselves too seriously. But I would imagine that there's some nuance in the sense of like startup land. It's like people with ping pong tables and all that kind of stuff. And you've got like white collar startup type workers, but then you also have more blue collar people who are responsible for delivery and actually building the homes and things like that who might not be might not be used to on the one hand, like a startup type of environment in terms of its informality or whatever it is. But on the other hand, like with hyper growth kind of ambitions and things like that, like what have you learned maybe about culture building and especially trying to kind of marry two, I would imagine, pretty different types of people and getting them on the same page and moving in the same direction. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all just, just people at the end of the day. And some people like a, a structure and, and don't like unknowns and some people don't mind it. So we tell people when they start that there's going to be a lot of crazy stuff happening. There's going to be a lot of figuring stuff out. There's going to be a lot of wearing different hats. And whether that happens in the office or in the factory, it's the same thing. And and some people can't handle it and they and they and they we we kick them out quickly. But but you know, the people that can't handle it, they're the ones you want because they're the ones putting in the effort extra effort. They're the ones really thinking, really working hard, really bringing more more to the table and not just coming in and punching a, a clock kind of thing. So it's it's been great. We do do biweekly uh a lunch with everyone where we cater food and then everyone factory and office sits together. But we all, we all work together because it is, it is a factory at the end of the day. So even the office people are involved with, with factory stuff. So, but it's been fun and, and we try to make things funny and entertaining and take care of everyone and, and treat people properly. I don't think that a lot with a lot of manufacturing, they leverage abusing the laborers by like, really getting them at the lowest pay and squeezing every dime out of them. And I don't think that's sustainable. If our business can't work without, if our business can't work while paying everyone properly and treating everyone fairly, then I don't want to do it. It's not going to be a long-term thing. So what's going to get us into success is, is a great product and a great cost structure and all, and all that. But yeah, we do, we do a lot of funny stuff. I've always my whole life done a lot of funny, weird stuff, not really very traditional and and that's all good and it all contributes to the whole thing i think yeah along similar lines it's pretty unusual to see again a hyper growth kind of startup that is also a family business and you and your father mentioned work together what i don't know if you worked together before or if this is your first time but what have you learned 
about working with family. What advice would you give to folks that are considering starting a business with family? Seems like a pretty unique opportunity, but also a pretty unique challenge. I mean, it's it's great. I mean, what what else could you ask for? I have kids. I can't imagine growing up and working with my own kids. Obviously, it's it's amazing. Paolo and I have done a few projects before in in the past, but mostly do, done our own things, and then came back together on this project. I was up with another business in, in Northern California, and he had just moved to Las Vegas. And we, we were talking one day about the folding house idea, and we said, let's give it a shot. Let's let's make a website. Let's make some some 3D models and see if we can get any traction. And we just started working on it, and it took off. And I decided, this is the big opportunity. Let's dump this other business and go to Vegas and work full-time on Boxable. And he did the same thing. And then we just kept dumping more and more resources into it. But it's it's really great. We get along really well. We have complementary skill sets. He's more on the design and engineering and, and strategy side. I'm more on operations and, and sales and marketing and business development and capital raising and all, all that kind of thing. So really, really fun, really awesome to have a partner in this that that I'm so well aligned with and can trust, of course, and, and all that good stuff. So it's just, it's amazing. Every, every day, pretty much, I'm like sitting here like, like, I don't even believe that that the world is real anymore. I fully believe that we're living in a simulation and that this is all just made up just because things are so crazy for me right now. <laughs> yeah, that's really neat. That, that's so cool. Yeah, my understanding is that as you're, as you're planning to scale this thing further, that you're looking at pursuing kind of more of a, uh, like a partner factory, almost like a franchise model to accelerate expansion, I would imagine. But what what are some of the variables that kind of drove that decision? And I don't know to what degree you're already, you already have some partners lined up or franchisees lined up. Maybe what have you learned in the early days of that process? Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, so within the US, we will operate and control all the factories. I think that's, that's a no-brainer. Hopefully end up with four or five really big ones that can cover the whole US. But internationally, it's just a whole crazy learning curve. And I, I, we just didn't think it made sense for us to go try to go to Zill and set up a factory there and learn all the local laws and local customs and local tweaks. And we thought, this is housing. The product we're engineering works everywhere from, from a, a requirements point of view. We want to scale this thing up really fast. This is a, a huge problem everywhere. It's a multi-trillion dollar opportunity. And if we get the formula perfect here, we'll just basically hand that over to big companies in other countries and say, here you go, sign on to this kind of franchise program. We'll, we'll send you the equipment. We'll hook you into the raw materials, our quality control, our branding, our sales pipeline, all of it. You bring in your, your own money, your own local expertise, uh, and, and you guys execute. And then by doing it that way, I think that we're going to be able to go from one or two big factories in the US to 10, 20, 100 factories around the world, like really, really fast. And this is something that everyone can get behind, like including governments, because governments are very involved with housing and a lot of politicians run on housing and there's a lot of funding behind it. And the whole entire banking system, of the whole world is integrated with housing and mortgages. So this is something where we are going to get the big guns in here once we prove out the basics to blow this thing up. Because the, the opportunity to destroy the, the price of housing and help a lot of people is just so huge. Yeah. I know that IP tends to be a pretty important factor in franchise models because, you're, again, you're giving them the playbook. And so effectively, your IP is, is the value in a lot of cases, the brand and all that kind of stuff. 
what have you learned, I guess, I know you all have, I mean, I think you have like a couple dozen patents at this point, a lot of it related to kind of the manufacturing process itself and all of that kind of stuff. But what have you learned about the intellectual property side of things, how that factors into pursuing a franchise model, especially as you go international and you have different governments that may may respect intellectual property to a greater or lesser degree? What have you learned from that stuff? Yeah, so previous business for like the past 30 years was intellectual property licensing and invention. So he would basically invent products, design them, patent them, and then license or sell the patent to other companies that would actually manufacture and, and, and sell them. So he's an expert in creating defendable IP. And we do have a big patent portfolio, filings, trying to do that in all the important countries around the world. Patents don't really just like protect you 100%, but they give you, they give you the threat of a lawsuit. So all it does is, is someone can knock you off and they can try to work around the patents, but they just have to realize if this company has the patents, there's going to be a lawsuit. It's going to have teeth. It's going to take time. There's a big downside. So it's just a, basically a big, scary threat. Uh, and that's all it is. And there are workarounds and there are countries that don't respect it and, and all that kind of stuff. But overall, I'm not even worried about that because it's just a small part of our strategy to protect the company. We also have a tremendous brand. We have a tremendous head start. There's a huge barrier to entry for this. Anyone else that wants to get involved in this, they're going to need hundreds of millions of dollars. And anyone that's going to put down hundreds of millions of dollars is going to maybe not risk it by, by blatantly violating patents. And then the other thing is, even if you looked at all our patents, and even if you took a house today and dissected it, and took the whole factory and dissected it, guess what? We're already a step ahead. So the next gen of the product and the next gen of the factory, by the time you copied what we're doing now, we're already going to be way ahead of you and you're going to be way behind. So you can create an inferior knockoff product and I'm sure it'll happen in China. So, and, and then there's another thing too. Again, these are big houses. You can't make them in China and ship them here. They're too, they're too big to ship cost effectively from China. And there's just a lot of different reasons. Another thing is the, the government regulations, the approvals, the permitting. If you knock this off in China and shipped it to the U.S., you wouldn't be able to actually deploy it and build it in most places because you wouldn't have all the, the permits you need and the, and the modular program. So I think we're just in an incredibly strong position and nobody really gets the full vision yet. Like a lot of people are looking at this as like a tiny house company and it's not. We have a vision where we'll be able to build almost all building types on, on the planet and there's a lot of work left to be done. And for now, we're the only ones who can do that work because we're the only ones so deep in this that we get all the different aspects of it. How do you, yeah, so along those lines over the next 10 years, it sounds like you have your Casita prototype and you've brought your own version four or whatever it is, but it sounds like your long-term ambitions are that these are plug and playable and that you can create literally any building type with it. What are some of the things, and I would imagine that's what you're spending a lot of your time kind of thinking about or trying to solve for at this point. What are some of the challenges that are resonant in that? Or like, what are some of the, what are, what are some of the, the final bosses that you have to beat to achieve your grand vision for this thing? Yeah. So right now we spent the last few months just going crazy, getting this government order done at all costs to, to make it happen and to pull that off. Now we're able to take a breath. There's no more impending deadline and we're able to dial everything in. So we are here dialing in all the stations in, in the factory. We're doing the next gen of the product. We're getting new manufacturing equipment. So in the next six to eight months, we have about another 10 or $15 million of manufacturing equipment coming in. We've, we've simplified the product design 
massively to reduce costs through just smart engineering and and sourcing and all that. And basically, we, we need to massage this thing in to profitability, which we have a clear path to. And then at that point, I, I think it's it's going to be game over because it'll still be at a really small scale. The product will be profitable. There'll be infinite demand for it. And then we'll say, all right, now we're ready to scale up. Now we're ready to go into different room sizes, different interior configurations, stack and connect this this billion dollar monster factory that I'm planning next. And we're, we're close. We can see that point now where once we get there, anyone who looks at this is going to say, it's done. These guys have won. No one is going to be able to compete with this. Right now, we make one wall panel for the house in about 20 minutes to a significant degree of completion. No one can do that in lumber stick framing. In the next six to eight months, that with the new upgrades we're doing, that's going to be two to three minutes per wall panel. So just at this early stage, very small, I still call this a prototype factory. If we're cranking out a wall, a full wall every two to three minutes, I mean, it's we're leagues ahead of everyone. So it's like really exciting every day. We, we continue to have like breakthroughs and those aren't going to end. The, the innovation is not going to end forever. We're going to keep going with it. We're going to keep trying new building materials and methods and simplifying the design, reducing the, the part count, the components in the building, and just like really exciting stuff for us. Yeah. You, 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 it seems like you've really got like a tiger by its tail in a lot of ways here. And you didn't, like you said, I mean, it's blown you away in terms of how fast this has all happened. In, in venture, a lot of times there's this challenge when a company kind of hits hyper growth where the founder who started it isn't necessarily always able to level up and, and be the kind of person to run it at the next level. And you all have control of the business still, so you don't have to necessarily worry about your investors saying like, hey, we need to make a change or whatever it is. But I have to imagine that as you're thinking about how, how big this thing is going to probably get in the next few years, like you, you, it's still coming upon you to build skills and level up and things like that. Like what have you... How have you done that so far, I guess, to get from where it was in the very beginning to where it is now? How have you continued to evolve as a leader, as an executive? And then what are some of the things that you're trying to kind of plan ahead for or build in place so that you you continue to be the right guy as this thing becomes even more massive? Yeah, it's, it's definitely been a wild ride, big learning curve. I think your brain is like a muscle and the more you work it out, the stronger it gets. And I'm dialing in all my various skills, trying to be very cautious to not create any landmines for us. And we do intend on bringing in like a full kind of executive team of, of experienced individuals, especially when we go into the public market. But for now, I think we have so much left to give to this to realize the vision. But I'm sure we'll get to a point where our input is not as valuable anymore and it takes on a life of its own. But for now, we, we have a really small core team and, and we're hitting out of the park on, on a lot of fronts. And we're all growing our, our management skills. Like I've had employees before, but I've never had a team this big. So that's that's a new thing to experience. And even just the levels of bureaucracy that are actually become required at some point when you get bigger, as much as I hate it, you do need like rules and regulations and standards and procedures and all that. So getting all that massaged into place, it's been great. And getting slowly bringing in the help and the experts to take things off my plate so that I can focus on the stuff I'm really good at and not waste my time on stuff that I shouldn't be doing is feels great as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Well, listen, I want to respect your time. It's, I mean, 
it's it's pretty amazing what you've managed to do and in a in a pretty brief period of time and it sounds like your your best days are ahead for folks that may want to learn more maybe want to get involved in some way where can we send them yeah definitely check out the website boxabl.com boxable.com go to our youtube we have our latest factory update video on there announcing factory 2 our instagram is really active we post nonstop action on there we have factory tours anytime you want Come to Vegas. It's a nice trip. And then you can check out the casita, check out the factory. We do tours every day. And please reserve a casita, put your name on the wait list, submit any other thing that you think you want to contribute into the website. And yeah, please stay tuned and we'll keep trying to to build houses and and entertain everyone. Very cool, man. Well, congrats on your success so far and, and look forward to continuing to see the journey. And yeah, just really, really impressive what you've been able to do. So congrats. Thank you so much. ideas on how to disrupt your own organization and how Manifold Advisory might be able to help, visit us at manifold.group advisory. And if you're looking for a truly value-added investment partner, visit us at manifold.group ventures. If you found this episode helpful, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much as always for listening. We'll see you next time.